Welcome to the Teens Talk podcast, created by the Student Virtual Board of Youth Celebrate Diversity. YCD supports students and teachers organizing locally, educating themselves and their peers, and taking action for inclusion and social justice. For more information, visit ycdiversity.org. In this episode, board member Elizabeth interviews activist Marisa Molina on the status of immigration reform in the U.S., including the DACA program. Okay, well, hi everyone. I'm Elizabeth McBride and I am a junior at Pineview School in Osprey, Florida. I was originally going to be joined by Sophie, who's, my, who's part of my team. She helped plan this episode and interview with me, but unfortunately she couldn't make it here. I just know that she was a part of this and I'll let Marissa introduce herself. Hello everyone, my name is Marissa Molina. I am the Colorado State Director for an organization called Forward US, where I focus on immigration policy, both at the state level and at the federal level. Um, but before starting to do policy work, I was actually a high school teacher um, and I've worked for many years um, organizing youth and working very closely with, um, with students and families in schools. So as you might have guessed from Melissa's introduction, we're going to be talking about DACA and immigration policy in this episode. And before we do that, um, I just wanted to give a brief description of the program and a little bit of history for anyone who might not be too familiar with it. So on June 15, 2012, the Secretary for Homeland Security announced that certain individuals who had been brought to the United States when they were children would be able to apply for a grant of deferred action. And basically, these people called DREAMers would be protected from deportation, and they would also have work, work authorization. And this is, this is the program called DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Now, this program started in 2012 under the Obama administration. However, with the Trump administration, there were some challenges and obstacles. One, in 2017, the Trump administration announced that it would discontinue the program and this would possibly jeopardize thousands, millions of immigrants, undocumented immigrants living in the United States. But thankfully, in 2020, the Supreme Court and a 5-4 decision ruled that this was that the Trump administration couldn't do this because they did not give enough reason. However, the Supreme Court never mentioned whether the creation of DACA was constitutional. And so the Trump administration still had plenty of room to try and counteract it. As of now though, you know, there's a new administration, Biden's president and DACA is still active and you can still apply to it. So given the controversy and debate around DACA and immigration in general, we decided to host this episode to just get a little bit more perspective about the issue from Marissa, who is very knowledgeable about this topic. And so that leads into our first question of um, just a brief introduction. I know you already gave one, but maybe if, you, if you're comfortable, could you share a little bit about your childhood, your immigration journey, high school, college? Um, yeah, of course, I'd love to. So I, um, for almost seven years, was, the, was also covered under the DACA program. Only just recently, my application to adjust my status and become a green card holder um, was approved. But DACA ha was a life-changing program for me. I came to the United States at the age of nine, um, and my family and I settled in the mountains of Colorado in a small town called Glenwood Springs. And 
growing up, I knew very well about my undocumented status because my parents were pretty open with us about it. And part of the reason why they were open about it was because they wanted us to understand how dangerous it could be if somebody else found out that we were undocumented. So, so much of my childhood was around keeping this really big secret that my family and I were undocumented um, because it could put my family and I in jeopardy and potentially put in deportation proceedings. So, you know, at a very early age, I had a very clear um, understanding of how um, this marker, I guess, was impacting my life and the life of my family. Like I knew there were things like buying a car or even renting an apartment that were particularly difficult for my family without that social security number. Um, and, you know, even though I like knew that I was undocumented, I don't think it was until high school that I truly deeply understood what it meant to be undocumented. Um, and I went to a school where the majority of people did not look like me, where the majority of people were not immigrants. And, um, you know, my parents used to tell me, you know, if, if you hang out too much with the other Latino kids, your teachers are gonna think you don't wanna go to college. Um, and so I really separated myself too from my own community and perhaps other folks who were facing some of the same similar struggles of being undocumented because, you know, my parents perceived us as like, um, perceived that if we had, if we continued down this path where we were hanging out with other, with, with other Latino students, that perhaps our teachers were not going to want to pay as much attention to us and help us get to college, which was a big reason why we came here in the first place. And so I think like that made me internalize not just a lot of shame around my status as an undocumented person, but a lot of shame on who I was in general as a bilingual, um, you know, like Mexican immigrant. It, was definitely something that brought a lot of shame. And my school also didn't do a great job of creating safe spaces where folks like myself could talk about, our families could talk about what it means to be an immigrant in America. There were no opportunities to have those conversations. And in fact, there were many classrooms where my teachers unfortunately would allow students to use language that further you know, created shame around being undocumented, allowing people to call us illegal aliens. And so, I think that for me created this huge weight on my shoulders because I walked into a school where people knew me by my, by my academic accomplishments, but didn't know often like the stress and the pain that I carried as somebody who was undocumented. And then I saw my sister graduate high school and not be able to access college in the same way as other students. And that's when I started to understand like what it really meant to be undocumented. Um, and in high school, um, you know, when I was applying for, for college my senior year, I also had this experience where my dad um, was pulled over. He did not have a Colorado driver's license. And, and at the time there was a law that said that if somebody was pulled over without a driver's license that they needed to be arrested because, you know, that was a, a, like a signal to people that you were undocumented. And so that moment for me like really, really shifted how I understood this problem of immigration. You know, thankfully um, my family and I were able to advocate for my dad and he was not put in deportation proceedings. But then I started this journey of applying to college and I was undocumented and there was no in-state tuition and there was no DACA and there was no conversation about how to help students like me. 
And so my only resource was my high school counselor who just vowed to be a resource and like a support system to me. Um, and I'll never forget what he, what he did, to, did for me. And, you know, in, in college, right before DACA was announced that summer, I had decided I was gonna drop out of school because I was paying out of state tuition, almost $25,000 cash every year. And my family just couldn't continue to afford it. And I was like, well, if I make my parents spend all this money and I still can't even get a job when I graduate, what is this, what is this even worth for, you know? And so I was gonna leave the United States and I was gonna drop out of college. And that summer President Obama announced DACA and it really, really changed my life because it provided that lifeline I needed in that moment to be able to apply for a student, a private student loan, to be able to continue going to college and pursuing my education. And then in my last year of college, the, the state of Colorado passed in-state tuition, which allowed me to pay for school at like, you know, $5,000 a year instead of 25,000. And so all of those policy changes really changed my life and have really shifted and, and shaped the way I think about my work and why I wanna work in policy and why I did work in education, because I understand how powerful those spaces can be to advocate for, for other people. Yeah, I definitely researched on you and you have an incredible journey. I think um, I from what I remember, you graduated summa cum laude and political science and economics and really you're sort of an inspiration, an inspiration story with your advocacy efforts. And so when did you start um, beginning your advocacy career? Yeah, I would say, you know, when I started teaching in 2016, it was the first time that um, that I started to share my story publicly, that I was undocumented. And so much of that had to do with the fact that, um, you know, my parents had been able to adjust their status. And so there was this safety in a way to say, I can tell my story without putting my parents in danger. And so I started to talk about my story as an, as an undocumented person, as then a documented person, and um, particularly because I was on the one of the first core of, of teachers to teach with Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA. And so there's a big conversation about these teachers that had this status that were now in classrooms like me. Um, and so that's where my advocacy started was like under, I guess like this new safety that I found in both my DACA status, but also in my parents being safe from deportation through adjusting their own status. And then I would also say like my students, you know, I taught 120 young people in the far Northeast of Denver that changed my life. And while I hope that they learned something from me, I think they taught me a lot more than I could have ever imagined. You know, my students taught me what it means to be in community and what it means to fight for one another. And so when Trump was elected in 2016, the first people I heard from were my students and they were asking, are you going to be okay? Are your fam are our families going to be okay? And I just couldn't say yes because I wasn't sure. And so instead, what I started to tell them was like, I don't know, but I'm going to fight really, really hard. So they are. And I have tried to keep that promise over the years to ensure that my students, you know, can always look back at me and know that I'm somebody who leads with integrity in my words and in my actions. Um, and so they really inspired my advocacy. I work with um, a lot of families uh, when I was working 
as a family um, and community engagement um, person at schools. And so seeing how they were, you know, experiencing these issues also really helped me understand like the power of advocating, the power of sharing of, of sharing and empowering people to use their stories to create change for themselves and their communities. And you also mentioned earlier that you work with an, that you're the, I think, Colorado Immigration Legal Director for an organization called Forward Us. Could you please describe that organization and your work with that organization? Absolutely. So um, Forward US is a bipartisan political advocacy organization. And so it is a national organization. And I started to work with them um, before as a volunteer sharing my story um, back in 2017. And then later in 2019 as a staffer. And that's when I took on the role that I have now. Um, and Forward, you know, as we seek this policy change at the state level, it really came from saying, you know, while we wait for the federal, uh, for there to be an environment where we can push federal policy change, how can we continue to move the conversation forward at the state level to ensure um, that we are just changing the way people are talking about immigrants, but that we're also changing the type of access and opportunities that immigrants have um, in the state of Colorado, particularly. There are other state programs um, in Florida, in New York, in Texas, and in Georgia. And we see these as key states that have large populations of, of immigrant communities, um, but also key um, legislative battles to be fought when it comes to immigration. And I also read somewhere that you have met with members of Congress before um, pertaining immigration. I just wanted to ask, you know, what was that experience like? What did you talk about? Yeah, I've had the opportunity to talk and meet with members of Congress directly many times through my work at Forward, both as a volunteer, but also now on staff. And all of those um, moments have been incredibly important, you know, and, and, and the way I see it is when you tell your story, you tap into this sort of agency within you that you are in charge of your own destiny that you hold the pen to write the rest of your story. And while, you know, we can't change all the hearts and all the minds of people, it, I think that for me, being in those spaces with members of Congress, sharing our stories with other directly impacted individuals has really helped me, you know, center myself as like, again, the author of my own story. And, and I think that that has been really important but I think it has also taught me to learn to listen to what other people have to say, right? Even sometimes when I don't agree with their political views or their policy views, is how can I really listen and how can I understand how that person might be perceiving an issue and maybe what we need to be doing to get that person to maybe one day change their mind on it. Um, so I think that that has been really insightful and you know, particularly I've, I've gotten to meet with members of Congress from the Colorado delegation. And I would say that we've always had like really positive and respectful conversations. And sometimes it's important to sit in front of another person and say, look, you might hear about immigration on the news. It might be a news topic that's really heated. And at the end of the day, I am a person and my life is going to be directly impacted 
by the decisions that you make in this space. And I want you to remember me and the other people sitting in this room when you go and make those decisions. And I think there's an incredible value to showing people who are the humans behind the policy and the numbers and the headlines. Because when you're able to humanize an issue in that way, it's much harder, right, to fall into the fallacies of, um, you know, news stories or headlines that are just trying to divide us versus helping us seek common ground solutions. So I also wanted to ask, you know, how has the pandemic affected your work? I mean, has it made it harder to advocate for immigration? You know, it has pushed us to be more creative, which I think was good um, because obviously we couldn't do the same in-person events that we were doing. So we had to shift to a lot of online conversations, but it also taught me how important it is to remain, um, you know, strong within your community. When the pandemic first started, so many DACA recipients who I work with closely, they were like, just, they needed help with some basic questions. Like, can I apply for an employment? Where can my family receive rent assistance, right? So small things like that, that allowed me to be a conduit for people to receive the types of resources and information that they received. And so I think it changed my advocacy a little bit differently because I might not have been advocating for policy, but I was still advocating for system change that would allow people to receive aid who were really being impacted really um, in really big ways, um, so, such as the undocumented and the immigrant community. So, um, you know, it's, it's taught us how to be flexible within the advocacy that we do and to really listen to the needs of our community as we go. And so this next question is more of a personal opinion one, but you know what, with Biden becoming president and his new immigration reform, I've I've read uh, Politico and other stories about how a lot of his reform it's currently it's more just policy reviews and sort of planning for the next steps. Do you? I mean, how has that affected? Has has that affected your work at all? And you know, do you think that that, that it's going into in a good direction? Yeah, I feel like I remain really hopeful that this is going to be the year when we get something done. Um, and I think what, again, our work really is centered around making sure that people understand that, you know, before I had been undocumented for 20 years before receiving a green card, even though my parents were citizens. And so our goal is to be able to talk about and say, look, right, there is no line. There is no system that is working for people, even when they want to do things the quote unquote right way. And so we have got to get this right because we can't continue to go down this path where we are decades into being unable to solve a problem. And so I am, um, I have been feeling really hopeful and optimistic seeing the actions of the Biden administration and also seeing what's been happening in Congress. So in March, the House did pass um, HR 6, the Dream and Promise Act, uh, which would give more than just dreamers um, the opportunity to be on a pathway to citizenship, which is incredibly important. But what we're also talking to members of Congress about is just how important it is to get this done by any means necessary because people cannot keep waiting. And so, um, you know, we, we are seeing a lot, lots of really great movement and I would say to the young people who are listening to this, who are either know someone who's impacted, they're impacted themselves, their parents, or they just generally care about this issue. This is a really good time 
to get active. And a really easy way to get active is to figure out who is um, your senator, your senators, and who are your members of Congress in your district and reach out to them and say like, hey, I care about this issue. This issue is really important to me as a young person and here's why. I want you to make sure you're looking at all the solutions possible to fix this issue now. I think, you know, young people have such an incredible power to move these conversations. And so I guess I'm also calling on, on those of you who are listening to me right now to go out there and, and tell your members of Congress that we need to take action because that matters. And I, I don't know how um, accurate this next question is going to be, but sort of my team and I noticed that I, lately, last few months, there hasn't been as much coverage that we could see on immigration and DACA. Like I remember back, um, you know, when right before Trump was elected and the beginnings of his presidency, I would just hear constantly about, you know, the wall, um, immigration policies and just whole, you know, controversy. But now it feels like lately, I don't hear many stories. I think the only news story that I saw pertaining to immigration um, that I just saw, you know, randomly not do research was the, was the Vice President Harris's trip to Guatemala and Mexico. But other than that, I haven't really seen much. And do you know the reason, do you have any speculations as to why that is? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of big problems in our country. There's a lot of big things that need to be solved. Climate change, the, um, the pandemic is still very real and it's still taking the lives of many people. There are people who have lost their jobs and um, just, you know, the racial reckoning um, that we went through last year that continues to be a conversation. I think that there is just a lot of things happening in our country. And sometimes we have an inability to focus, right, on some of those issues. But I will say that this past week, um, we saw a lot of really positive coverage around DACA in the week before because we did have the, the anniversary of the um, of the creation of the DACA program, but we also had the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision that you had mentioned that came last year that allowed the program to continue to be um, in place and also opened it up for, for new applicants. And so um, I would say that's probably one of the reasons there's lots of things happening. I think it is really important, um, particularly if you're somebody who cares about this issue to stay tuned to how people at, your, in your, at the local level are talking about it. Like I can tell you in Colorado, we had a really positive conversation over the last few weeks because the Senator Governor, um, I mean, the Governor, Governor Polis um, just signed into law a package of pro-immigrant bills that are going to change the lives of immigrants in the state of Colorado and make us, our state a more welcoming place. And I would also say, right, like we deeply care about dreamers, but we also know that there's 11 million people out there who are undocumented. and so our conversation also has to be inclusive of the broader population of folks who um, who are out there who need to also be covered by these um, laws and policies that we're seeking. So I also just wanted to ask your thoughts on DAPA. I think that's how mm -hmm. what it's called. I think it's Deferred Action for Parents of Americans or something like that, and how the Trump administration, um, I think they've ascended it, but it was originally proposed sometime in 2013, 2014. Um, do you think that, you know, underneath the Biden administration, do you think that that has the chance to have a comeback? You know, 
one of the things, so yeah, the DAPA program would have provided protection similar to those that, that we had under the, that we have under the DACA program for parents of US citizens. And that program would have been, again, another lifeline for, for thousands of people. Um, and it was actually the Supreme Court that ruled that that program um, was unconst not unconstitutional, but that that program couldn't be um, put in place. And it was a really painful decision. And so I think what we are trying to do is like, look, DAPA, DACA are great programs. They've provided a lifeline for many people or would have provided a lifeline for many people. But these programs are temporary. What we need are permanent solutions to the issues of immigration. And that is why it is incredibly important that Congress takes action to move this issue forward because only they can, right, put this in, change the loss of our country. And we've gone decades without any sort of solution. And I think we all, right, like you all listening, us uh, people who are voters, like need to be paying attention because look, we elect these folks to go to Congress and, and, and move our country forward. If they're going to Congress repeatedly, unable to solve a problem, then we need to ask ourselves, are we electing the right people? And how do we make sure that we hold people accountable once they are in office? Because it is very clear that at this point, they have failed to do that for a really long time. And so we need to hold people um, accountable because we need permanent solutions. Our communities deserve permanent solutions beyond DACA and beyond DAPA. And so I also wanted to ask you about what I mentioned before about Harris's trip to Guatemala and Mexico and about his statements where she said, do not come. Um, what are your thoughts on that? You know, it seems sort of, you know, contradictory to Biden's stance on immigration. Yeah, you know, I think the, the conversation about asylum is, is somewhat, is some, it's a little bit different than the one we're having around immigration because there are so many different factors in people's home countries that lead them to leave their countries, particularly things like violence, things like climate change. They are aggravating the, um, the environments in which people are living that are not conducive to people being safe and living with dignity. And I think as we think as a country about how we do asylum, how we welcome asylum seekers, we have to think about how we welcome them with dignity. Um, and we have to remember that seeking asylum is a legal right for people. And so that's what I will say, right? Like if people have a credible threat, they should be seeking asylum because that is their legal right to do so. Um, and we also have to make sure that we think about the policies and, and the US has had for many years, right? Like intervene in other countries in a way that has been detrimental to the people who live in those countries. And so as we think about how do we make sure that people aren't endangering their lives and the lives of their kids to come to the US border to seek asylum. What we should be asking ourselves is like, how are we going to support countries to be able to turn things around for the folks in their community so that they are safer, so that they can put food on the table for their kids and so that we're not actually contributing to the problems that continue to exacerbate people's reasons for leaving. Um, and you know, it's really heartbreaking to see the ways in which um, asylum seekers have been vilified by so many people. And I would just ask those of you who are listen, listening to think about like, you know, 
what does it take for somebody, particularly a parent, right, to decide to put their child in that dangerous journey? I'm sure that they would rather not, but it are, but again, right, it's that, it's poverty, it's violence, it's the fact that people can't grow the crops they used to grow because of climate change. And so it's not just as easy as being like, we need to just protect our borders and keep people out. Like, these are human beings who deserve the same dignity to live their lives and, and live out their dreams in the ways that we have had that opportunity. So how can we as the United States and a leading power in the world, right, really think about what does it mean for us to show up as a leader on this issue, to support countries who need that extra support, and how do we make sure we create an asylum process that again centers the dignity and the humanity of people? And I know you mentioned how a lot of the, the current sort of measures to deal with immigration, they're temporary, they're not permanent, they could you know, go away with the next administration or the one after that. And so what do you think would be a solution? Are you thinking of a constitutional amendment or something like that? So I mentioned earlier um, HR6, which was the House um, legislation, the Dream and Promise Act, that created a pathway to citizenship for um, a lot of dreamers, those that were covered by DACA and those that were not. We need comprehensive immigration reform. That is what we need. That is how we're going to move this issue forward. We need to make sure that there's a way for people, for, for 11 million people who are here undocumented, to be able to have a pathway to adjust their status because so many of them, for one reason or another, through a broken immigration system, are not able to get on a pathway to citizenship. And so we need that legislation and we need that legislation to be as comprehensive as possible because as much as we like, you know, the DREAM Act or the DREAM and Promise Act, those are all great, but those leave thousands, uh, like millions of people out of a solution, right? And, and the parents and the siblings and the aunts and uncles of dreamers are just as deserving of a pathway to citizenship as dreamers are. And so that is, you know, what we think it takes is comprehensive immigration reform that really allows people um, the opportunity to get on a pathway to citizenship. But comprehensive also means that we look at what are the legal avenues for people to come to the United States. Because what we want is to ensure that down the line, we don't end up with 11 million people, again, who are undocumented, but that we're creating modern <laughs> and legal avenues for people to seek to live in the United States and contribute to this country. And so my next question is, what have been some highlights of your advocacy efforts, you know, any notable stories or moments? Yeah, I mean, I would say one of the ones I will never forget is um, November, the, the November hearing of outside of the Supreme Court, um, when the Supreme Court heard the case on DACA, uh, my story was actually included in an amicus brief, which is, um, it's a, a document that people who support um, the program could file with the court. And so my story was included in one of those, which meant that the justices, as they were deciding they, their cases and were reviewing these amicus briefs, got the opportunity to read my story and the story of my family. And that to me, you know, was a very special moment because my parents have sacrificed so much and given so much to this country through their work, um, through the ways in which they contribute and to their communities. And to be able to say 
and bring that story to the highest court of the land in the United States was a really special moment. But I also got to stand outside of the Supreme Court and, and give a speech to those folks who were outside in the rally um, and motivate them, right? And remind them of why we were there and remind them that we stood on the shoulders of giants who ensure that we could even seek, you know, our, our, our a fair day in court. And so I would say that's a moment that I think about often. Um, most recently, like I was mentioning this past Friday, Governor Polis in Colorado signed into law Senate Bill 131, which um, ensures that any personal information that people share with state agencies like the DMV, um, any of that, that their information is going to be protected and not used, for, not used against them for immigration enforcement. And that is a huge accomplishment. We worked on this legislation for more than a year. We did an incredible amount of research. We uncovered a lot of things that were happening that were not right. And that allowed us to seek accountability for our community and to ultimately say, look, people have the right to access benefits and services, particularly in a moment like the one we, we're living through, right, because of the pandemic, to safely access vaccines, to feel safe accessing vaccines, to feel safe accessing food resources or rent assistance. Because we know, and, and I think the pandemic has really highlighted, that if one or two people in our community are not okay, it really impacts us all, right? And so what this bill does is it ensures that people's information is safe, that people can feel safe accessing critical services um, so that not just them, but all of us can live in community safer and healthier. Um, so that for me was a huge accomplishment. Um, so yeah, I think those two moments have been two big highlights of my work. Yeah, that's really nice. And my next question is not as cheery. It's, um, I wanted to ask you, what were some major obstacles you faced? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I am 29 right now, which feels really old to me. <laughs> um, but I am often the youngest person in rooms. I'm often the only person who is an immigrant themselves or the only Latina woman sitting in a space. And so sometimes I think that can be a daunting task to be there and to feel like, I am the representative for so many people and that I have to do the best job that I can every day to ensure that I am with integrity, carrying in the voices and uplifting the work of, of people in my community. Um, and there's always like imp imposter syndrome, right? Because I think um, I've had the incredible privilege and opportunity to be in rooms and in decision-making spaces that a lot of people my age or that a lot of people with my background don't have the opportunity to. And I think there's a lot of times when I'm like, am I really knowledgeable enough to be here? Do I really know enough to be advising on this? And I think um, it's remembering that the lived experiences and the stories that we all have are actually a great amount of expertise that we don't need a Harvard title that tells me I'm undocumented to be able to talk with some authority around the issue and how people are impacted. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I would say those two things. And, and then the last one, you know, particularly around an issue like immigration is that there's a lot of di divisiveness when it comes to this issue. There are people who um, have heard one side of the story for so long that they're so unwilling to hear anything but that. And so I think it can be really disheartening, right? I mean, I've shared my story 
many times. And sometimes in the comments section, I've, I've heard people say like, well, I'll just shoot you and that'll solve the problem. And, you know, when, when we allow the discourse to be so negative, when we're allowed to talk to one another in this way, because we're sitting behind a computer screen and it's easy to type those things, but maybe not as easy to say that to somebody face to face. I think that can be really hard. And I think figuring out like, how do, how can we create a bridge to the people who disagree with us while simultaneously holding them accountable for the harm that their actions and that their words can have on vulnerable communities. And so I would say those, those are some of the challenges I've experienced. And so given that, what advice would you give to someone who may be a DACA recipient like you or someone who might just want to become an immigration advocate? You know, I would say start small. Um, when I started, I didn't start talking, you know, I didn't start advocating in big ways. Start small, start with what you feel comfortable. If that is writing a letter to your elected official or emailing them or calling them, that's a great first step. So identify like what can be a first step that keeps you safe because I, you know, if you're undocumented or have DACA, like I want you to feel safe advocating. So think about that. What does it mean for you? What's a step you can take? And then also how do you surround yourself with a community of people that can have your back if there's ever anything to go wrong, right? So look within your own um, you know, areas and communities for organizations that are already doing work around advocacy, I guarantee you, you'll find so many folks with similar stories to you in those spaces. And that's so important to build community with those people that are already working in the movement um, so that you can feel that added support. I would say if you're an ally, I think you have such an incredible opportunity in this moment in time to the point that you were making, Elizabeth, right? Like, let's have conversations about immigration, about DACA, about undocumented people. And if you're not seeing them on the news or if what you're seeing on the news isn't reflective of your values or what you believe about this issue, sit down and talk to somebody. That might be your grandparents, that might be your own parents, or it might be somebody else in your community. How can you help be a bridge to that community? Because it's sometimes easy and not easier, but I think like those of us who are directly impacted, it can be really hard to have conversations with people who are saying, well, you are an illegal immigrant, right? Like that's really hard to take. And so those are great spaces for our allies if they feel comfortable, right? To say, I wanna understand more about why you believe that. Tell me more, right? Kind of question them a little bit and get to understand them. I think having those conversations are important. And then, like I said, it is so critically important that your members of Congress hear from everybody, everybody who you know who supports immigrants, tell them to email their senator, to email their, um, their members of, of Congress in the House, and let them know that this issue matters to you, that you want to see solutions come out of this Congress. Because the more that they hear that reinforcing message that, look, those of us who are not immigrants or who are not directly impacted, like, we care about this issue too, and we wanna see you take action. So don't ever forget how important those calls and those emails can be. And so my last question is, what are your plans for the future? Um, what do you think your next steps are going to take the coming, you know, this year? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> one of my goals as I think about the year to come is 
thinking about going to graduate school to you know, learn more about the policymaking process, to learn more strategies, to network with more people and really understand like what are other ways in which I can have an impact in my community. Um, and so I look forward to exploring some education programs related to that, but I am super committed over the next year to continue to work towards our goal of um, permanent legislation, permanent change at the federal level when it comes to immigration issues. Um, but there's also a lot of other issues that I care about. You know, I mentioned climate change a lot of times. I live in a beautiful state that um, has faced climate change for a long time. We've seen these incredible wildfires and um, that's also been an issue that's like near and dear to my heart. And so I look forward to being able to continue my advocacy in ways that can impact my community broadly. Well, that concludes our interview. Thank you so much, Melissa, for your words of wisdom and your answers. They were all really thorough. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Elizabeth. It's always a pleasure to talk to young people who are so knowledgeable, who care so much, and who are investing their time and wanting to make their community better. So I commend you for the time and energy you dedicate to this work. Um, but also to any of you who are listening, like, Thank you for taking the time to listen, um, to become more informed and more engaged. And I look forward to connecting with any of you who would like to learn more about how to plug in. If you um, have any questions, you can always email me. My email is marissa, M-A-R-I-S-S-A -S -S -A, at fwd.us. So send me an email, let me know what your thoughts are. If you have questions or if you wanna connect about advocating, um, would love to connect with you. And so the last segment of this podcast is just going, I'm just going to give a list of few resources and a book that I thought was very helpful with understanding this immigration problem. And so the book that I wanted to talk about was, is called Sanctuary by Paula Mendez and Abby Shaw. And I read it for a book club, but the Boys and Girls Club. And it's, it's based off, um, obviously the immigration system, but it's sort of set in a futuristic system where you know, everyone has a chip in their arm and it tells them if, you know, if you're undocumented or if you're a legal resident and it navigates this girl and her brother's story as they try to seek sanctuary in California. And the reason why I particularly like it is that, first off, it's really well done. The plot moves at a brisk pace and it's very um, detailed, but also I just like it because it's very realistic in that it portrays the goal and the horrors of you know, undocumented immigrants as they flee hardships. It really portrays all of that. And you can, it mentions coyotes and has, and the immigrant situation as they're trapped within these trucks, you know, in filthy conditions trying to reach a better life. So if anyone wants to um, sort of know, understand the immigration system better, but also see some, but also, you know, find some entertainment, I would suggest that book. And as for resources, there are plenty of resources that you can access online that will you know, help you with DACA. They will help you apply for it. They'll tell you information about it. And some of the websites that you can find are United with Dream. There's also immigrationhelp.org and also Immigration Legal Resource Center. So for anyone who is who wants to find more about DACA or who is who could potentially apply to it, I strongly encourage you to check out those resources. Um, they're free, accessible on the internet, and I wish you luck in your journey, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider donating to support this work by youth activists across the country. Visit ycdiversity.org to make a donation or to get involved.